We are in Matthew chapter 13, and we're looking at verses 53 through 58 this morning. Hometown rejection of Christ is what I've titled the message here. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we do thank you for your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. And uh, Lord, have your way in all of our hearts as we consider the person of Christ presented in the gospel of Matthew uh, once again, even this morning. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, you note the uh, outline on the overhead. We have worked our way through uh, to chapter 13. We are finishing out chapter 13, which has as the crux of the emphasis here, uh, the parables of the king. Matthew chapter 1 through 10 can be summarized as a presentation of Jesus having the proper kingly messianic credentials. And then chapters 11 and 12, Matthew 11 and 12 presents the rejection of Jesus by the nation as led by her spiritual leaders. And then Matthew 13 is Christ's response in the form of really judicial judgment as seen in his teaching of kingdom parables, which hide further kingdom truth from those rejecting him while at the same time disclosing it to his true disciples. Matthew 13 could properly be uh, titled Kingdom Parables and more specifically, Kingdom Interlude Parables, since it is giving further truth in relation to the kingdom, specifically in relation to the time of kingdom delay. Before moving on, let me summarize what we have seen in this chapter on kingdom parables. Uh, There is so much errant teaching on the kingdom, and most people consider it to be a very secondary and almost, you know, doesn't really matter type thing, (laughs) although it, it leads to tremendous error, even in terms of the whole socialized Christian movement, uh, a social gospel, and everything else. But uh, there is so much errant teaching on the kingdom that to find someone consistently, rightly dividing the word of truth is rare when it comes to the subject of the kingdom. Uh, the most popular view in evangelical circles today is that the kingdom is not yet, but already. Now, if we're talking about the messianic kingdom, now certainly God's sovereignty, his sovereign reign is always in place all the time. But we're not talking about that. Uh, The gospels are not talking about that. It's talking about the messianic kingdom. And to say that the messianic kingdom is already, but not yet, is to say, well, in some way, Jesus is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, and yet he's not sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Uh, He's not. He's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He is not seated on David's throne in Jerusalem today. Uh, The kingdom is not yet. They're half right, only half right. And so those that try to have it both ways really end up with total confusion. They try to have their cake and eat it too and get sick in the process. Uh, Bruce Baker makes this statement, all these views that place the kingdom either all or in part in the present have one thing in common. They all reject a consistent literal interpretation of the Bible. All of them, without exception, abandon the normal, plain, everyday understanding of the text for an allegorical or spiritual one. And I would share that view. Uh, On some level, they all enter into this, this basic error of not really taking the text plainly for what it says consistently. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, Christ plainly says that in these parables, he is presenting the mysteries of the kingdom. A mystery refers to a new insight that was previously unrevealed. These are new kingdom insights, but the kingdom remains the same messianic kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament and then offered by Jesus at his first coming. What is new is that the kingdom would not come with Messiah's first coming. It was presented, they rejected, now it's being delayed. The new insight here is that there would now be a kingdom delay. What is new relates to the conditions in view during this time of delay. And what is new is the issue of specifically who will ultimately go into the kingdom based on a personal acceptance of Jesus as Messiah Lord. The great issue during the time of kingdom interlude is who will ultimately be qualified to go into the kingdom once it comes. 
Understand that during Christ's earthly ministry, masses of people were following him. There was kingdom fever. That is the context of these parables as stated in Matthew chapter 13, verse 2. Jesus is emphasizing that although there are multitudes that outwardly indicate a kingdom interest, relatively few are genuine converts who will actually go into the kingdom in the end. And so just by way of review, uh, we have noted first coming, the kingdom was legitimately offered. You say, well, how does that relate to the sovereignty of God? He knew he had to go to the cross. Yeah, yeah, all of that's true. God lets history play out. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the alpha. All those things are true. But you cannot deny that the kingdom was legitimately offered. Repent for the kingdom is, is at hand. It was being presented as at hand. Uh, but the problem is, Israel did not come to repentance. They did not repent. And so now we have new kingdom insight, further kingdom insight related to kingdom delay. That's what the parables in Matthew 13 are all about. And it presents a commingled condition. The true kingdom children and false kingdom professors. They are all together during this time of kingdom delay, this interlude. At the second coming, the kingdom will actually come. And then it will be sorted out. This is new information. Uh, They really didn't see the distinction between the first and second coming to start with. Christ makes it very clear. In the end, the kingdom will be set up in relationship to his second coming. Well, let's review. Uh, In terms of the first parable that we looked at, uh, the parable of the sower and the soils, the main point is the genuine properly respond to the word of the kingdom and bear fruit with repentance, or with endurance, rather. And then uh, the second parable was the parable of the wheat and the tares. During the time of kingdom delay, the genuine, that is the wheat, and the counterfeit, the tares, are mingled together in the world. That's the condition right now. And then uh, we come to the third parable. And uh, this is the parable of the mustard seed. And the emphasis here is the kingdom movement Christendom, big tent, begins very small, but outwardly grows into a very large movement. And that is proven true. Uh, In terms of just Christendom, professing Christendom, it is the largest religion in the world today. That is true. The big tent of Christendom has become very, very large. The largest religion in the world. Started very small, has grown into what it is. And then right along with that, we call this, uh, you know, a twin parable here, the parable of leaven. This kingdom movement, Christendom, while growing very large at the same time, becomes thoroughly leavened with compromise. And that has proven true. And it's consistent with what the New Testament teaches, that as we go along in the church age, what more and more characterizes professing Christendom is apostasy. The last, the, the, really the sign of the last days of the church age is apostasy. And that's what we see everywhere. And yet there is a faithful remnant within the context of overwhelming apostasy. The fifth parable, parable of the hidden treasure. To acquire the kingdom treasure involves a sellout buy-in commitment which values it above all else. And then, again, another twin parable, per, uh, the parable of the pearl of great price. Those seeking kingdom truth and finding it in Christ gladly exchange all else to acquire it. I think we have an example of this with the rich young ruler who wouldn't sell out for Christ. Uh, he wouldn't see Christ as above all, as most important. Uh, We see it in Christ's teaching in Matthew chapter 10. If you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. You love father father, mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Uh, Christ has to be seen as most important. And then the parable of the uh, dragnet, the seventh one that we saw there. The kingdom dragnet collects both good, the saved, and the bad, the unsaved, people into the kingdom movement, if you will. But in the end, the good will be sorted out from the bad with only the good going into the kingdom. And finally, that last parable, uh, some things old, some things new, 
a parable of the new and the old. The, the nature of the Messianic kingdom presented in the Old Testament does not change. That's the old. But new truths are now presented concerning its timing. There's a delay. And how it relates to the intervening age prior to the second coming. That's the new. So here are the key takeaway points, just by way of review. Key uh, takeaway points from the Matthew 13 parables. Number one, the kingdom is not ushered in at the first coming. <laughs> All the Jews thought when the Messiah comes, he brings in the kingdom. Uh, John the Baptist thought that. Uh, repent, the kingdom's at hand. Uh, we're, we're, we're going into the kingdom. Repent, so, so you can go into the kingdom. Uh, no, uh, the kingdom is not ushered in at the first coming, but rather is delayed until the second coming. That's a key point in, these, in this new kingdom insight. Number two, during the kingdom interlude, believers and unbelievers coexist in the big tent kingdom movement, what I call Christendom, what we commonly call Christendom. And number three, the great issue in the kingdom movement is who will prove to be genuine and ultimately go into the kingdom. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, as Jesus says twice in the context of this chapter. So, one more thing in terms of the kingdom. Uh, there are two key texts, and really more, but two I want to point out. Two key texts that show the Messianic kingdom is yet future. And gives us the precise timing as to when it will come into play. The first is found in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 110 is undeniably a Messianic psalm. Everybody agrees. Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament reference. It is directly quoted six times and alluded to at least seven other times. Very prominent text. And what does it say? Well, note, please note, <laughs> I don't know why my will not advance. There we go. Thank you. Uh, Psalm 110, 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till, till I make your enemies your footstool. This is where he is. Till his enemies are made his footstool. Till, till all, all enemies are put under him. The Lord, at that point, in context, the flow here. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, the New Testament is explicitly clear that after his resurrection, Christ is presently seated at the right hand of God, waiting till his enemies are put under his feet at the time of the second coming. Then will come the kingdom rule of the Messiah. But that's not happening now. We are in the time of kingdom delay. In the New Testament, Peter preached this to the Jews. The other text. We have one Old Testament, one New Testament. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent. Peter speaking to the Jews. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Did you catch that? So repent so this can happen. And then he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive he must still stay in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, whom heaven must receive until, until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. In other words, the messianic kingdom that is to come, as prophesied by all the Old Testament prophets. So this text tells us exactly when the time of kingdom restoration will come. It will come when Israel finally comes to repentance. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Israel today is not repentant. Most Jews, in fact, are secular Jews. They have completely rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so this kingdom restoration will not come until Israel finally comes to repentance. Then Jesus will come and set up his kingdom. And this is all future. We live during the time of kingdom delay as taught by Christ in the Matthew 13 parables. And that brings us to our text today and the conclusion of our study in Matthew 13. Let's pick it up, verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. 
Now, this is a transitional statement showing that the parables as presented in Matthew 13 really belong together as a group, as an organic whole. Uh, Matthew moves from addressing the fickle multitudes in parables to now dealing with the rejection of Christ by his own hometown people. This rejection by Nazareth really becomes indicative of where the whole nation was at in their rejection of Jesus as Messiah Lord. Now, for about a year, Christ had been ministering in and around Capernaum. In fact, this city became his base of operations during his Galilean ministry. And these people, therefore, had more light and more exposure to Messianic truth than any other group, and therefore were held the most accountable. Because of their rejection, Christ's last teaching to the multitudes in this area around Capernaum was in the form of parables, which, as I say, was a form of judicial judgment, hiding further kingdom truth from them. Jesus had spent more time in this area than any other, but their response had been largely one of either over-rejection or indifference. And so now Jesus departed from there, never to return again, except to pass through to minister somewhere else. When Jesus is rejected, he, he moves on ever in search for those who will receive his truth. Verse 54. So where does he go? He leaves this Capernaum area, and he goes back home to Nazareth. When he came to his own country, his, his home place, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. It was amazing. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? This is now the second time that Jesus has presented himself to the hometown folk in Nazareth. Earlier in his ministry, he had gone there as recorded in Luke chapter 4. And after speaking in their synagogue on that first occasion, at that time they tried to take him and throw him over a cliff. How's that for a, a hometown reception? But the text says in Luke chapter 4 verse 30, passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. Miraculously, he just passed. They wanted to throw him over the cliff. Had him. We're going to throw him over. And he just goes right through their midst. Miraculously. So this appears to be the second time now that Jesus came to his hometown, his own country, meaning his hometown of Nazareth, during the time of his earthly ministry. And the cross-reference, by the way, here is found in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Now, Jesus' custom was to go into the synagogue and teach as seen in Luke chapter 4. And a major theme, as we find in Luke chapter 4, was that as he taught, he was the major subject of his teaching, showing that he is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. In Luke 4, when Jesus read out of Isaiah 61 about the Messiah, he in effect then said, that's me. And that's when the sparks began to fly. The issue is always Jesus and his messianic claims. It always comes back to this. And I love Jesus. I, I hope you love him. I hope you know him. He's the most exciting person that there's ever been. Uh, he's our living God, uh, the living Savior, the living Shepherd. How, how wonderful to know Jesus. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, this is by way of example that it always comes back to Jesus and who he is. You say, well, I think, so I think sometimes it goes back to what he did. Yeah, let's think deeper about this. Uh, when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, you might say, well, the issue is what he did on the Sabbath, not who he was. However, as part of his justification for doing it on the Sabbath, he claimed to be, are you ready for this? Lord of the Sabbath. And you know what? When you're Lord of the Sabbath, you can do whatever you well please on the Sabbath, right? Right. That's no small claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath. So the issue becomes right back to who he is as Lord. That was the ultimate issue. Who do you think you are doing this on the Sabbath? Oh, I just happen to be the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath. And by the way, this idea of Lord is uh, Lord over all. 
the very definition of Lord is sovereign authority over. That's the idea of Lord. And if he's not Lord over all, he's not Lord. I mean, the very definition of Lord is sovereign authority over. What a claim. Lord of the Sabbath? That means you must be claiming to be God himself because only God is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, the hometown folk were astonished at his wisdom, the wisdom of his teaching. Undeniably, it was profound. No, they didn't question the reality of his teaching or his mighty works. They didn't say, well, I think it's all quackery, pretty fakey. Nobody said that. Nobody ever said this is not real. They just refused to accept the plain truth of what it indicated. Namely, that he was truly the Messiah, the special one sent from God in fulfillment of prophecy. That's the part they did not put together. They were amazed at his wisdom, but if they had thought about it, this was in perfect keeping with what the prophet said would define the Messiah. Everything about Jesus' life interlocks with Scripture perfectly. It's amazing to behold. For example, uh, they were so amazed at his teaching, they should have thought about what it says in Isaiah chapter 11, the messianic, clearly a messianic. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is the line of David, the son of David. And notice what's going to define him. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Tremendous emphasis on on the unparalleled wisdom that will come forth from him. They saw that. They admitted it. Now, if one is claiming to be the Messiah, this brilliant display of wisdom should not be shocking, but rather expected. It was in perfect harmony with who the Messiah was prophetically said to be. And there's no subject that Christ couldn't handle. His his wisdom was amazing. No one ever stumped him. John MacArthur says, he taught about regeneration, worship, evangelism, sin, salvation, morality, divorce, murder, service, servanthood, pride, hate, love, anger, jealousy, hypocrisy, prayer, fasting, true and false doctrine, true and false teachers, the Sabbath, the law, discipleship, grace, blasphemy, signs and wonders, repentance, humility, dying to self, obedience to God, the kingdom, and countless other subjects. He taught the truth about everything that pertained to spiritual life and godliness. Who else does this? Nobody. This is Isaiah chapter 11 on display. There's your answer. It was profound. He was never stumped. He never lost an argument. He constantly put his critics to silence, stumping them. John chapter 7. The Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? I mean, he's never been to one of our universities. He's not been to seminary with the rabbis. Where, Where does he get this stuff? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Well, there you go. Right there's the answer. Uh, It's God the Father who's behind everything I'm about. And then in that same chapter, verses 45, then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who were were sent to get Jesus, and they came back empty-handed. They came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. What a profound statement. Nobody ever spoke like Jesus. Now, the problem with Nazareth was that they could not see beyond Christ being veiled in humility and humanity. They saw him as merely a man, saying, where did this man get this wisdom? Now, if you think Jesus is only a mere man, that's going to be a problem. They failed to see his lordship. They failed to see that he was the God-man thinking him merely to be a man. They couldn't get beyond the 30 years 
of knowing him as just a regular guy down the street. Yes, a very nice guy, a very good person, but just the carpenter. Now, it was obvious even to them that this great wisdom and mighty work should be accounted for, but they were at a loss as to how to account for it. Even though it should have been self-evident that the power of God was on display, consistent with the, the Holy Scriptures, the Messianic prophecies, it should have been self-evident that he was fulfillment of them, but they missed it. They could not see beyond the rationale of their own familiarity with him. And so they say, verse 55 and 56, Is this not the carpenter's son? <laughs> this is him! We, we know him! Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? Uh, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, uh, Joseph, or, or Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now again, Nazareth was not a large place. We think it was a village of perhaps about four hundred people. And the way this is worded with the definite article, the, the carpenter's son, it makes it sound like Joseph had been the only carpenter in town. I mean, I don't know how many carpenters you need. Probably, we could say, well, several. But anyway, uh, it's, it's specifically the carpenter's son. Uh, the word carpenter, by the way, generally means craftsman and could refer either to a stonemason or a woodworker. Uh, early tradition says that Jesus made yokes and plows, but, but that is uncertain. Often young men were taught the trade of their father. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, the, the parallel passage, Jesus himself there is called the carpenter. So it is surmised that prior to his public ministry, Jesus worked with Joseph in the family carpenter business. And at some point it seems that Joseph had probably died and most believe that to be the case because he is not specifically named at this point as is Mary. And uh, the reason is probably because he was dead at this point. But these hometown folk, they knew the background. They knew the background of who Jesus was. They knew his mother Mary, and they named his brothers, James, Joseph, or, or Joseph, Simon, and Judas, otherwise known as Jude. They knew his sisters, who were still living among them. They knew the family, and that they were all just regular folks with no special credentials at all. No way, no way could Messiah come. They live down on that street down there. We know he's just a carpenter. No way is this the Messiah. Jesus' background credentials, humanly speaking, were very unimpressive. They did not fit what was expected of the Messiah. You know, this very special one who's going to come. You see, he had no special training. He had no earned doctrine. He did not sit at the feet of the learned rabbis. He didn't work his way through the establishment. He was just a nobody from a nobody village. I mean, all the Nazarenes knew oh, were nobodies. Just a simple, humble carpenter by background, which they knew personally. You're not going to fool them. That's what they're thinking. We, we know. We, we got the scoop on this guy. In their minds, it was impossible to think that he was the Messiah. Yet the question remained. Yet the question remained. Where then did this man get all these things? That's a good question. It's a great question. They saw his humble background and how it connected to them as a community, but they couldn't see beyond that. And what was the real problem? They really failed to connect the life of Christ with the prophetic scriptures, the prophetic messianic scriptures. A footnote here, Roman Catholic theology claims that Mary was a perpetual virgin and claims that these named here as half-brothers and sisters of Jesus were actually his cousins. However, the Bible nowhere affirms that Mary was either sinless or a perpetual virgin. In fact, in terms of the, 
the Savior, in, in Luke 1.47, Mary spoke of God, quote, God my Savior. And only sinners need a Savior, you see. Uh, Mary, by her own confession, recognized her need of a Savior, and hence that she was a sinner. Consistently in the New Testament, when brothers or sisters are used in reference to a parent, as is the case here, it always refers to literal blood brothers and sisters. And there are many other corresponding references to the brothers of Jesus, and the natural way to take these in context is that they were the actual half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. Well, at this point in his ministry, by the way, even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. You would have maybe thought they would have come to his defense. But oh no, uh, in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. I mean, even his own family was not on board at this point yet. It's bad when you don't even have your own family with you. However, as time went along, by the way, the brothers did come along to, to believe in him. They are all represented with Mary, their mother, in the upper room after the resurrection. James became the key leader in the Jerusalem church. Judas, also known as Jude, is commonly identified as the writer of the little, uh, little letter of Jude. The hometown people were fascinated over the wisdom and the mighty works of Jesus, but they could not get over him simply being a regular man whose background they knew so well. All the while he was growing up and living among them for the better part of 30 years, it never, never, never entered their minds that this could possibly be the Messiah. Twice in this context, the question is raised about where this man got these things, as seen in verse 54 and then again in verse 56. They couldn't deny the reality of his wisdom and his miracles, but at the same time they couldn't see beyond him merely being a man whose background they knew so well. So note the major issue in question is all about who Jesus is, his identity, and what accounts for this wisdom and power. Verse 57. So here's the conclusion of the matter. Verse 57. So they were offended at him. They were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, he said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. The word offended uh, is scandalizo. By the way, note this dual response. They were astonished at him, verse 54, and at the same time they took offense at him, verse 57. So I say this word offended, uh, Greek word scandalizo, uh, is the idea of to be stumbled or to be tripped up. And the idea is that they found in him obstacles that prevented them from believing in him. They stumbled over his commonness, over his ordinary, just one of us background, and they couldn't see past it. In response, Jesus quoted this proverb, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. This was often the experience of the prophets who, because of familiarity, were rejected by those close to them, seeing them as nothing special. Who do you think you are? Uh, I, we had a professor in Bible college by the name of Abe Penner. He was a real soul winner, always out sharing the gospel with people. But he would emphasize with us that normally you won't be the one that wins your family to the Lord. Uh, there's just something about familiarity does breed contempt. And a lot of times that's the case. Christ is kind of pointing out a general principle here. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and his own house. Say, well, they're going to really esteem me and appreciate me. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the family. Uh, don't count on it. Don't count on it. Wasn't the experience of Jesus or normally of the prophets. And again, we have this saying that fits very well. Familiarity, familiarity breeds contempt. D.A. Carson says this. Most often a person is better received at home than anywhere else. But, but if he enjoys an elevated position, the reverse is true. Hey, you're just, you're just family to us, man. I know out here everybody thinks you're something, but, but we know the truth. <laughs> John Phillips says this. They had never heard such Bible exposition. And that's true. They had never seen such miracles. But they were stumbled because he had grown up among them and they were too blind to see beyond his humanity to his deity. There was the issue. Jesus identified himself as a prophet, and he was a prophet. 
but he was more than a mere prophet. As we study it through, we find that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, no person was ever allowed to hold all three offices in one person. But the Messiah, prophetically, was to be all three in one person, prophet, priest, and king. Now, a prophet is one who speaks for God, thus saith the Lord. A prophet had a direct message from God. And in the case of Jesus, he was God, the God-man, speaking directly as God for God, making him a totally unique and superior prophet to all others. But even though uh, his prophetic ministry astonished the folks at Nazareth, even so they were offended at his messianic lordship claims. It says in verse 58, Now he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. The cross-reference here is interesting. In Mark chapter 6, it says, Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about to the villages in a circuit teaching. Twice in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus marveled. It's kind of an amazing thing to have the the God-man marveling. Twice, only twice, we are told in the Gospels that he marveled. In Matthew 8.10, Jesus marveled at the faith of the Gentile centurion, who had great faith in Christ's lordship authority, so much that all he had to do was say the word, and it would be done. He understood the chain of authority. I, to him, a man of authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and say to one, come, and he comes. He says, you just speak the word. Jesus says, I haven't seen such great faith. He marveled. I haven't seen such great faith, even in, in the whole of Israel. But on this occasion, as seen in the cross-reference of Mark 6, Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the people in his hometown of Nazareth. The evidence was overwhelming. They clearly saw the profundity of his wisdom. They undeniably knew of his unparalleled mighty works, his mighty miracles. The whole area of Galilee knew this. They knew of his perfect character having been in the neighborhood with them for many years. And yet they refused to believe what should have been an obvious conclusion, that Jesus is Messiah Lord, as prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. Sometimes miracles were conditioned on faith, and sometimes not, depending on the will of God in any given situation. Oftentimes Jesus did heal people in mass, whether people believed or not. In this situation, the inability of Jesus to heal was not indicative of a lack of power on his part, but rather in response to their unbelief. You see, Jesus did not work miracles at his own discretion. He was obedient to the Father and did what the Father instructed. Jesus came and functioned in the servant role, only doing the will of the Father at every point. And once people had ample evidence that God was on display through him. In effect, the father pulled back the miracles. He didn't do miracles just for the sake of miracles in the face of unbelief. Miracles in the economy of God always had a purpose. Yes, they secondarily served a benevolent purpose, but their primary purpose was of sign value. They were saying, this is the Messiah. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the miracles of Christ are consistently called signs. They were sign miracles pointing to the truth of who Jesus was as Messiah Lord. Now, once people rejected the clear evidence of those sign miracles, God pulled back from doing them. Light rejected, resulting light being withdrawn. Warren Wearsby says this, Good summary statement. This was his final visit to Nazareth, whose villagers had no more opportunities. Jesus would be known as Jesus of Nazareth, and his followers would be called Nazarenes, but Nazareth would not receive him. Matthew chose this as, an, as a fitting close to the, to the section, Rebellion Against the King. One reason the unbelief of Nazareth was so shocking was because they clearly saw the truth of Christ's wisdom and mighty works by their own admission. They did not deny these realities. Where did this man get these things is the the question on the table. 
Christ's life and ministry was tethered to the scriptures like no other person in the history of the world. After his resurrection, Christ rebuked the disciples on the Emmaus Road saying, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. My whole life and ministry connects to the prophets. The folks at Nazareth could not see past his humility, the commonness, the plainness of Christ. But they should have. They should have seen it through the truth of the scriptures as written 700 years prior in the book of Isaiah. You know, we uh, read Isaiah 53, and they made a little mistake when they did the, you know, put the chapters and the verses in. Because Isaiah 53 really begins in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. And there in the chapter 52, it says, Behold my servant, how shall be, who shall be exalted. And it presents him as exalted above all. And then it goes on to say in the next verse, at the same time, he would be marred. Marred more than any other man. Both would be true in the same person. And then it goes on to say, Isaiah chapter 53, Who has believed our report? Who has believed the report of the prophets concerning this special servant who would be exalted above all others and at the same time marred worse than any other? Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These are rhetorical questions in relationship to the Messiah. The entire surrounding context from Isaiah 52, 12 through chapter 53, verse 12 is clearly messianic. To whom was the arm, that is the power of the Lord, uniquely revealed? Well, it was revealed to Israel in the person, up close and person, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. God's arm of power was put on display in Christ's mighty miracles. The arm of the Lord, the arm of Yahweh, the power of Yahweh on display. And yet, yet who believed the prophet's report? The answer is, not many, not many. They couldn't see beyond the humble veil. They should have read on this revealing of God's mighty arm through the Messiah is tied to humility and commonness that would be unappreciated. Read it. The report of the prophets. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. There was to be nothing sophisticated or special about the Messiah's growing up background. He was to come from a no appreciate, a place not appreciated like Nazareth. And he wasn't good looking, which is rather comforting. He was not good looking. Do you see what it says? And I'm not trying to put him down. I'm just reading what the scripture says. He has no form or comeliness. He had no beauty that would make him especially attractive. I'm not saying he was especially ugly either, but there was nothing stand out about him. He was common, common in every way outwardly in terms of background. So much so that the prophets, he says, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It's like, well, I'm attracted to him. He's, he's got this beauty. It just draws you. No, no, that's not him. And consequently, the prophecy says, he is despised and rejected by men. And we did not esteem him. There it was right there in their own scriptures. As plain as it could be. Jesus fulfilled the part perfectly. And they could not appreciate it. What irony. He was the arm 
the power of God on display in first person, and yet it was veiled in humility that had no special beauty to the point he was not esteemed, fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. Sadly, the hometown folk did not see the truth of this prophecy. They didn't put this all together, even though they knew the scriptures well. Especially the prophecies of Isaiah, as quoted by Jesus the first time as he came to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. So put this all together. I separated it out, but put it all together. Who has believed our report? The report of the prophets. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, especially to Israel, especially during the, the messianic ministry of Christ? He shall grow up, etc. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The arm of the Lord revealed, unappreciated, despised, rejected. What irony. Even though Nazareth completely missed the point of the prophetic scriptures, yet even this was the exact fulfillment of them to the letter. The amazing thing about Jesus was that he was so humble and so common. And yet he was God's power on display in person. He was deity veiled in humanity. And unbelief could not see past the humanity. Well, as we come to the end of this chapter, let me ask you, have you seen the truth of Christ's lordship? That he is Lord God. That's the ultimate issue. When Peter confessed to Jesus. You are the Christ. You know what he was saying? You are the Christ. What's the other word for Christ? You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. There's the whole issue. Messiah God. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on that, on that rock truth. The purpose of John's gospel says the very same thing. We get to the end of the whole gospel of John that was written so we might believe. The gospel of belief. What do we have to believe? What's the key point? Well, here's what it says. Truly, Jesus did many other signs, miracles, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah. The Son of God, meaning the very order of God, the deity of God. The Son of God that you may believe and may have life in his name. John wrote his entire gospel belief to show us that Jesus is Messiah God. And believing this, we may have life. This is what the people of Jesus' day failed to believe. They missed the point of all the miracles. Where where does he get all this stuff? I wonder. It's the fulfillment of the scriptures. It's pointing to him as Messiah God. John 1, 11 and 12. We know these verses. He came to his own. And sadly, his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. His name is who he is as Messiah God. As the Christ, meaning Messiah, he came in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. You understand, Messiah is an Old Testament word. Christ is an Old Testament, it's, it's a Greek word, but translates the Old Testament Hebrew, Messiah. As the Messiah, he comes in fulfillment of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. He was the prophesied coming messianic king slash ruler slash deliverer. And as such, his very nature was that of being God. He's Messiah God. And to believe in his name is to believe in him for who he is as Lord God. You can't separate out who Jesus is from what he did. He is Lord. He is Savior. And for true believers, that's a package. You know, sometimes people have this problem where, and I get it. You know, where you say, well, if Jesus is not Lord uh, of all, he's not Lord at all. Well, you've got to really kind of clarify that because people say, well, that sounds like works. You know, this area, I'm still working on this. I'm working. I, I want to kind of rephrase that. If Jesus is not Lord over all, he's not Lord at all. 
We as believers recognize his supreme sovereign authority overall. It's not like we're not working on things. We're all working on things all the time. But we do recognize him for who he is as Messiah Lord, Messiah God. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a converted Jew, who is also a great Bible scholar, in sharing his testimony, he shared this about his grandfather. To become a leader among the Jews, my grandfather underwent rigorous training and memorization. The scripture served merely as a base of study, and he was to spend his life studying the books of rabbinic traditions. His entire understanding of the scriptures was determined by these writings and by the interpretations of the rabbis from centuries before. He was never really able to read a text and hear what it plainly said. His interpretation was always controlled by Jewish tradition. For this reason, although he knew the scriptures so well, he was never able to see the Messiahship of Jesus in them. What a tragedy. You see, to see the truth of Christ, one must see the truth of Scripture clearly. When other factors cloud the truth of the Scriptures, one remains in blindness. Such was the case of Christ's hometown of Nazareth. They could not see beyond their own human evaluation of familiarity to the truth of Scripture. And hence, they did not see the truth of Jesus as Messiah Lord. And hence, they did not believe. Well, let me make this uh, application. Have you seen the truth of the Scriptures? In doing so, you see the truth of Jesus Christ, the God-man. As the God-man, he died on the cross as our Savior, paying the full price for our sin. As Lord God over all, he arose the third day. That's the gospel. Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. Christ, the Messiah, died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This gospel is totally according to the scriptures. And he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 15, 11, so we preach and so you believed. This is the key. Have you believed the gospel according to the scriptures? Have you personally appropriated the truth of Jesus as Lord God and Savior. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Yes, yes, yes. When he came, that deity was veiled in humanity. So much so it could not be appreciated apart from seeing the awesome insight of the prophetic scriptures. I hope you've seen that. According to the scriptures, this is our Messiah. He fulfills it all perfectly, both his humiliation and his exaltation. And we're looking forward to the best that is yet to be. One day, Jesus Christ is going to come in power and glory as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We're looking forward to it. The best is yet to be for us who truly know him. I hope you're among them. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close us in prayer.